first time some of you guys have even been able to see that video because usually the meet and greet's going on. And uh, it's mainly turned as like a buzzer to tell everybody to sit down in the last several months. But so now you're looking at it, you're like, what in the world is going on in that video? Well, if you've been going through 1 Corinthians with us, you can see a lot of like things that make a lot of sense, a lot of uh, confusing things in there. But the reality is 1 Corinthians is written to a, a group of people who really are wandering through the fog of life. And they've allowed a lot of things outside of God's word in the church to really influence the way they think and navigate their lives. They allowed culture to set it. Well, um, we're diving into one of those cultural things that I think the Corinthians face, but we also face as well here today in the United States, in the Western world, uh, and I would say all the way here in Cody, Wyoming, we face it. Uh, and one of those things that I want to talk about is expressive individualism. Have you ever heard of this? Expressive individualism. Uh, Expressive individualism is destroying us, if you haven't heard. It is ripping us apart. It's the cultural drive to be who you are, right? You do you, and don't let anybody tell you who you are. Uh, it's the don't let anyone tell you. It's a, it's, a, it's a false bill of goods. And the reality is I have purchased from this false bill of goods multiple times in my life and found it to be fraudulent, found it to be false, and found it ultimately to be destructive in my life. But individualism is not new. Let me read to you some of the reviews of uh, expressive individualism. First, starting with a really old one from the 1830s. There's a man named Alexis de Tocqueville, who's a Frenchman. He came in the 1830s to see America and see what the U.S. was like. And so he wrote a book called Democracy in America. And one of the things he says in there is this. He says, individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends. With this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. Sounds like Cody people. Then uh, that's an older description of individualism, but a more modern version talking about expressive individualism comes a, a quote from a guy named Yuval Levin. He writes in his book, The Fractured Republic. He says this, that term, expressive uh, individualism, suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. This is who I am and you will accept it. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights and it has given pride of place in our self-understanding. Basically this idea that whatever I decide that I am, whatever I determine that I am, is who I am. And I'm going to let you know who I am and you're gonna respect that regardless of whether what I'm saying is right or wrong. Because I feel that I am, so therefore I am. Uh, Mark Sayers, who's an Australian Christian leader, he writes in his book, Disappearing Church, he makes it, in, uh, he summarizes this cultural understanding in seven statements. And I want to read these to you because uh, these seven statements describe why the church is disappearing, why it's destroying us. I want to read these to you. It says this. He says, uh, the highest good, this is the culture's idea, that the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, 
self-definition and self-expression. Number two, traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, and self-definition must be either reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Have you noticed that? Number three, they, the, our culture believes that the world will inevitably, Im, inevitably improve as we gain more individual freedom. Number four, the primary social ethic is tolerance. You've heard this. Tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. And any deviation from this ethic of tolerance will not be tolerated. You guys might need to bring me down a bit again. It's feed, feedback and or it's got some feedback. Number five, our culture believes that humans are inherently good. Number six, large-scale structures and institutions like the church are suspicious at best and evil at worst. And number seven, forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity, being true to yourself, is what is exemplified. It's what is lauded. Okay, does this sound familiar at all? Right? You've seen this in culture. You've seen this in the news. But what's this look like in Cody, Wyoming? What's this look like in our lives? Well, in Cody, it means that every single one of your attachments to you is negotiable. It means that you, uh, every contract, every relationship, every life station is something that you can negotiate or cancel. Whether you're, that's dealing with your principal, your parents, a spouse, salesman, your boss, the ballot box, the courtroom judge, or of course the local church. It's all things that you can negotiate and cancel if you decide you do not wanna be a part of it. In your eyes, you are principally obligated to yourself and maximizing your life, your liberty, your pursuit of happiness to retain power to veto everything. It's yours. You see, we have a tendency to think that this cultural thing that we're seeing is something that we all ran from when we moved to Cody, and it's really just the pink-haired lesbians and the Antifa radicals that are the ones who are living out this cultural ethic. But that's not true. It's not true at all. It's actually a human struggle. It's a human struggle. Some of you have believed a lie that Satan is selling through expressive individualism and hop from church to church, avoiding, uh, avoiding any accountability in your life, an accountability that was meant to bring you uh, life and flourishing and lead to works and good deeds. You have friends who believe that the epitome of being the church can be found in their living room while they watch pastors teach, but the church can't touch them, can't tell them what to do. They can make their judgments from there. Some of you have moved to Cody and you love Cody because you think it affords you the opportunity, right, to avoid the crowds. But then you find out that as you guys avoid the crowds in Cody, as I avoid the crowds in Cody, it's still not enough. So what do we do? In our individuality, we get on uh, the public crowd of Facebook and we go with the rest of our other individual friends and we just bash what they are doing out there. Anybody feel convicted by that at all? Like, if, if I'm gonna vote for anything in this world, it's to destroy Facebook. It saved my friends and Cody. We need to understand something. Here's the need. 1 Corinthians 5. We need to understand something. We need to understand that we do not just have an individual identity. 
we also have, as the church of Jesus Christ, a corporate identity. And who you are, if you call in the name of Jesus, uh, is not just a local Christian. You are a part of the church. And in the Bible, it's described as a, as a flock, as a family, uh, as a body, as a building made up of lots of different materials that makes one beautiful image. We are a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And we're gonna look at 1 Corinthians 5, we're gonna see that the Corinthians were allowing a, a sin in a man's life. And that sin in that man's life did what all sin does. It goes beyond the individual to affect others. Sin does not just affect us, it affects those around us. So individual identity, expressive individualism is destroying us and tearing us apart. And I wanna show us uh, through our time together that that's exactly true and it's affecting us here in the church, all right? So let's uh, dive right in. I'm gonna be a little bit of everywhere, but first thing I wanna do is I wanna read 1 Corinthians 5 all the way through the whole chapter to you all at once so you can kind of get the big picture before we do that, okay? So let's do this. 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1. He says, it's, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your bo boasting is no good, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since that would mean that you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or is a reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what, I, what, do, or for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. All right. Uh, so as you guys can see, this is a passage I think that a lot of churches seem to pass over, all right, and want to completely ignore, and it's a tough one. We're, uh, we're talking about incestual sexual sin. We're talking about uh, giving a man over to Satan. What does that mean? That doesn't sound very Christ-like. So what is going on in this passage? Well, I want to break it down in three ways. First is the sin, individual versus corporate, okay? Then the response, which is pride, versus mourning, and then lastly, I wanna talk about the removal. Tolerance 
versus the grace of discipline. You right? The sin, the response, the removal. Let's talk about the sin. Verse one, what does it say the sin is? It's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. So what's going on here? Uh, it doesn't say that a, a man has his mother, um, but it, see, it doesn't give us a lot of detail. So we can kind of assume, right? This guy is maybe sleeping with his stepmom. He's having sexual relations with his stepmother. That's what's going on. Now, uh, I think all of you guys would agree. I would agree. And he says that even the Corinthian culture would agree. This is not good. That's not a good thing. We probably shouldn't be doing that. And so that's the man's sin. And it's, it, now, here's the thing is, in our culture, what would our culture say? What would individualism say? And say, man, like, look, like, let, love is love. Love is love. What does that even mean? I have no idea. Uh, but love is love. Why don't just let them do it? Let them, like, go that way, you know? Let, let them have it. But the reality is that man's sin has an effect on the rest of the body. It has an impact on the corporate body there in Corinth. And we know it. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, what does it say? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does that mean? Leaven, yeast. It's what makes bread rise, right? And what he's saying is you don't just add a little bit and it just stays to that part of the bread. You don't see a piece of the bread rise. You see the whole thing is, right? Because it works its way through. So in Corinth, um, he's saying, listen, guys, uh, if you allow this, if you continue to let this be, it's going to have an impact on the entire body. And we know that's true because like I told you at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, what is the key word for 1 Corinthians? Correction. There's not a single letter, single book in the entire New Testament that is more corrective in calling out and calling up than 1 Corinthians. The short outline that I've memorized for this is uh, divisions, disorders, and difficulties in the church. Does it sound like some problems have permeated? Yeah, a little bit. It's spread out. In 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 17, Paul talks about it like this. He says, but av uh, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Right? Here's what we, we can say. And you guys have experienced this in your job. You've experienced this in your sports teams. You've experienced this in band and in the church. When we allow brothers and sisters, people who call the name of Christ to live in sin and we say, you know what, let's just let it be, like let's avoid it, let's sweep it under the rug. What ends up happening is that permissiveness creates, it pushes the boundary lines, it pushes what is good and God's best farther out and more people think, oh, that's a step that I could take. It, see, it's working for them because we in our humanness are always looking for the exception, are we not? So it's kind of like this. Have you guys ever seen those TV shows of these guys who like have bears as pets? Right? And uh, if your kid or your son came up to you and said, man, I want to get, get, get a bear. Can we get a pet bear? Right? Look, that guy's got a pet bear. You're like, no, 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 it's going to kill him. Like, but look, he's got it. He's been in the habit for years. Right? But here's what we do. In our, in our relationships, we have friends who've got these pet sins, these pet bears in their life. And they start cute, right? Little boo-boo. He's just a little tiny little thing. Right? You just pet him. You go over your buddy's house and be like, bro, you, is that a bear? You're like, yeah, that's, that's boo-boo. You're like, that's kind of cute, man. That's kind of neat. Yeah, he's like, yeah, 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 it's, it's bear. He's like, but what are you going like, to do when the thing is like 450 pounds? Oh, no, 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 no. I got it all in control. Check this out. Boo-boo, sit. See? All under control. It's good. 
So they're paw- pawing on him, biting on his shoulder, nibbling on him. Everyone's like, oh, okay, that's kind of cute. And you watch as your friend continues to feed this thing. And it gets bigger and bigger. And he's out there and he's like wrestling with this thing. You're like, uh, okay. Hey, brother, this thing's getting bigger. What are you going to do? No, 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 I got it completely under control. Check this out. I got a leash for it. Check this out. I'm going to go on a walk. You want to go on a walk with us? No, keep it in the fence. <laughs> right? But this is what happens, and I see this over and over in the church. I'm 31 years old, and I've seen this plenty of times. I know this always happens, that you get surprised because your friend got his face slapped off. And everyone might say, and you might say in the church, I'm, I'm talking to you right now. Do not let this be just some church service. You've had friends, and I've watched some of you get your face slapped off by a bear because nobody was willing to tell you and say, hey, brother, that's a bear. You're feeding a dangerous animal. And you gave permission. Now there's four people in our neighborhood who are running around with bears because of you. And they think it's okay. And that sin does not just affect the person that it has eaten. Fathers are gone. And sons and daughters lose their dad. A wife loses her husband. Because he had this pet sin that he continued to play with until it consumed him. Sin is never just located in an individual. It always spreads beyond you to those around you. That is always what happens. And so this man's sin, his individual sin, was having an impact on the entire culture of the Corinthian church. But that's that man's sin. What's the corporate sin? The corporate sin... And it's actually Paul's primary focus. His primary focus is not this man's incestual relationship. The church, we, can, we tend to make those things the primary thing, right? Don't have sex until you get married. It's an evil, bad thing, right? How many of you grew up and you thought sex was gonna be like this? Like, it's like, ah, it's like a scary thing. Then you got married and you're like, oh my gosh, you're like, okay. You know, uh, we make that over the thing. But the reality is the sin was the corporate body did not get involved. The biggest problem in this whole chapter is not the man's sin. It's the corporate body's sin. Paul's primary focus is not the sin of the individual, but the church's attitude and their failure to carry out their corporate responsibility as God's holy people to speak the truth in love. Friends, that's what the church is called to do. That's what we're called to do for one another. We're gonna talk more about why. But why did they not speak up to this man? Why didn't they approach him? I have no idea. There's a few reasons. Commentators say this. Maybe uh, they thought that, maybe this guy thought he had a Christian freedom, right? Maybe there's some, an allowance here. Uh, did he hold, did the whole community hold some kind of worldview that physical sin had no spiritual weight? That was a, a revolving idea in that day. It's a revolving t- idea in our culture. We think sex is something that's just physical, but it's far more than spiritual. It has sp- uh, uh, physical as spiritual consequences. Or was there a social reason? Was this man one of the wealthy men in the community? And everybody was afraid to approach him. He was funding a lot of what was going on. We don't really know, but here's the thing is, what are the reasons that you don't approach others? Why don't we approach each other when it comes to sin? I think a lot of times, this is how I felt, maybe you resonate. Well, I don't want to be judgmental. You ever felt that? Like, I don't want to come across judgmental. Right? What's he going to think? I don't want him to get upset with me. Which means it's far more about who? It's far more about you than it is about them. I think a lot of times we're unsure what sin is. 
We're not really sure what to sin. We're like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to say. Or we're far too worried about how it might make them feel. Friends, sin, uh, your relationship with Christ, your walk with the Lord, it's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. And private sin always has corporate consequences. But corporate tolerance always has kingdom consequences. Think about Ravi Zacharias. You guys know him? And everything that's happened with Ravi Zacharias? Ravi Zacharias led an incredible ministry that explained the word of God and and, uh, helped us establish a Christian worldview in the midst of a culture that's constantly challenging it. He did a fantastic job, but what people didn't know is behind the scenes, he was having inappropriate sexual relationships and touching women in massage parlors and probably far worse things across the world. Now we can get, here's the thing is the culture, they saw that and what did they do? They threw it up on their news channels and said, see, look, these Christians are hypocrites. And you guys can get online and you could post and you could yell and be like, no, 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 that's just Robbie, that's not us. But the reality is what his sin did, what it was, and his faith community's failure to approach him and to love him and to speak the truth has an impact on all of us. His sin has touched all of us. And so you cannot have it both ways, right? You can't have it where it's like, yeah, all these Christians, see, you guys are hypocrites. You guys don't do what you say you're going to do. But then on the other hand, say, well, you can't hold each other accountable. You can't do that. You can't have, you can't have it both ways, guys. You've got to do something. got to do something, which leads to the response. Before we can do something, there's got to be some other things that are true. Because sin is always the fruit of some other root. You hearing me? Whenever, whenever somebody confesses sin to me, I see that sin. And now what I do is I look at that and say, well, where is this coming from? This is a fruit of a bad root. So what is the problem? So what's the bad root in the corporate community in 1 Corinthians? Well, let's look at the response. Pride versus mourning. In verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. We've already talked about it. The Corinthian church was arrogant. They thought that they were such these amazing theologians. And they spoke in godly language. And they knew Calvinism and all these kind of things, all right? They didn't know Calvinism. Calvin came later. I know the timeline. I'm just making fun, all right? But they had this idea that they were just something special. They were filled with pride. And what does Paul say? Ought you not rather mourn? So why do they respond in arrogance? It's because they're blinded with pride. Pride is so blinding. You could speak with lofty, godly language. You can act like you're a theologian, but it leads to arrogance and it causes a lot of devastation because you're missing the things that are happening in your friend's life. Your friend is playing with a bear. Who cares about how lofty your godly language is when your brother needs you? If you go back to Mark Sayer's summary statements, he makes this clear. This is what our culture deals with. Number one, he said the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. What's more prideful than saying, the whole world is about me? And you guys should all agree with me on that. And if you don't, you're probably a racist. That's the way our culture operates. What's more prideful than that? Number five, humans are inherently good. Are you kidding me? That's so prideful. You're inherently good? Are you kidding me? When's the last time you looked at yourself in the mirror? Verse seven, or not verse seven, number seven on his list. Forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity allowed. Hey, nobody is allowed to come tell me I'm wrong. 
That is so incredibly prideful. Do you really think that you've got everything figured out and you've got it all right? I don't have it all right. If you think that Outpost Community Church has got it all right, you got us messed up, we got it wrong. I'm so sorry, we don't have it all right. And we're not inherently good, can I tell you? But we worship a God who's inherently good and he is all right and he has all authority. So here's what I think the real problem is. I think the real problem in the church and in Corinth is we have an ignorance or unwillingness to see sin's effect, to acknowledge how destructive sin really is in our life. I'm reading a book by J.C. Ryle called Thoughts for Young Men. Everyone in this room, you should read Thoughts for Young Men. It is absolutely incredible. I'm gonna read you a quote. He says this. He says, young men, if you did but know what sin is and what sin has done, you would not think it strange that I exhort you as I do. You do not see it in its true colors. Your eyes are naturally blind to its guilt and danger. And hence, you cannot understand what makes me so anxious about you. And who's more blind than young men? Now, am I making too much of sin? Are we making too much of sin? I think, honestly, the church sometimes can, in a, in a sense, make too much of sin. But in, in another sense, I think that none of us are making enough of sin. And what I mean by that is we're not making enough of what it can do to destroy us. We don't see it. And ought we to mourn, mourn what sin is doing to all of you in your own life and into your neighbors? Whether it's sexual sin, abortion, racism, pride, murder, lying, theft, alcoholism, addiction, suicide, materialism, and expressive individualism. Why wouldn't we mourn these sins? They destroy every person that they touch and touch every person that they destroy around the people that they destroy. You understand that? Your sin is gonna touch those around you, but we should mourn because it affects our family, it affects our friends, and it affects the whole church. But having a love for one another means that we are individually and corporately committed to holiness. And uh, one of the things that we gotta begin to realize, guys, is that your sin is gonna affect other people. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you are a Christian, it's not who you are in Christ. Verse seven, he says it. You're already unleavened. This is who you are in Jesus. And because it's who you are in Jesus, man, be who you are, which is a Christ follower. Let God determine who you are and speak the truth, not only to your own self, but to each other and say, guys, this is not who we are. We're called to love one another. But why do we really mourn? The reason that we really mourn is because we love one another. We're called to really love one another and to care for one another. In Mark 16, 10, uh, when Mary is running back to the disciples after seeing that uh, Jesus is risen from the dead, it says this, she went and told those who had been with him, the disciples, as they mourned and wept. Sin's consequence was laid on Jesus, our Savior, and it destroyed and killed him. Not his sin, our sin. And the disciples mourned and wept. I'm telling you, I don't know if you guys watched the TV show The Chosen. If you haven't, what are you doing? Uh, it's amazing. But I tell you right now, watching that show has never made me so anxious about watching Jesus die on a film in my entire life. And watching the way that the disciples love Jesus and they're looking to him and how excited they are to be around him. 
I don't think we're ever gonna get to see mourning of Jesus in the disciples like this TV show is probably gonna show us. To walk with Jesus for three years and see the mourning. I heard a pastor talking about mourning. I heard a pastor share a story about this village in Africa. They were, uh, there were some missionaries there and they were sharing these Jesus films. They were showing the story of the Old Testament and they were showing it in film. So they watched the story of the Bible in these videos all the way to Jesus and they got to Jesus. And when they got to the death of Jesus on the cross, the, the village was so moved. They were broken and they cried and they all left and went to their homes mourning because of what had happened to this man mourning the consequence of sin. Man, we do not mourn sin, I think, because we do not love one another. We don't care for one another. We don't see how it's affecting one another. We don't understand the great commandment. The the number one commandment is not sleep with your mother-in-law. Don't sleep with your mother-in-law. That's not the number one commandment. You know what the number one commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor, when you see him in sin, you will mourn it. It should break your heart. It should not lead you to judgmentalism where you think, oh yeah, what an idiot. What's he thinking? Live that way. It should lead you to brokenness and mourning because that's how Christ responds to it. If you do not mourn sin, man, here's an application step that you should take. You should begin to pray that God will give you a heart that's broken over it that's broken over sin. Not just your own sin, but the sin of your neighbor. Broken when you see your neighbor playing with that bear, toying with something that looks like a pet sin. You should say, God, give me a broken heart so that I love this man so much that I'll be willing to go and talk with him about it. And you guys should pray Psalm 119.9 and 11 into your hearts and into your lives. Psalm 119.9 says, how will a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, which acknowledges the opposite of expressivist uh, individualism. It's saying, I need an authority in my life. And we say at Outpost, the authority, consciousness, and God in this place is the Bible. Verse 11 says, uh, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why? Because sin is destructive and it destroys and it'll hurt me. And it won't just hurt me, it'll hurt my wife, it'll hurt my kids, it'll hurt my church, it'll hurt my family and my community group. It goes beyond me. Because I love you guys, I wanna fight sin in my life and call it out. I wanna invite other men and women into my life to speak the truth in love into me so that I could be, I could flourish and those around me can flourish. I want to, uh, but I also wanna do it for others. Which leads us to the final thing, the removal. Tolerance versus the grace of discipline, all right? This is the, the tough part of the whole passage. But I wanna show you with as much abundance as I can that this is the most loving thing that we could do as a community, okay? Uh, what the Corinthians did was tolerate sin. We've already established that. We don't know exactly why, but we know they tolerated it. We've already established a lot of reasons why culture wants to uh, just permit sin, have nobody speak authority over them. But what do you do when your friend won't listen? Well, Paul tells us. First Corinthians 5.2, he says what? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or violer or drunkler or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 13, God judges those who are on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Hey, check this out, y'all. Five times it tells him, get that brother out. 
Remove him and get him away. When's the last time you saw a church do, do this well, where they took a brother who was in unrepentant sin and said, bro, we gotta remove you, you're out. Most of you guys can say, I've never really seen it. Typically what we do in the church is we go, we've got really gigantic rugs that we lift up, sweep under, and ignore it. Or we drive the guy out, in, like, just not because we love him, but because we just, we hate him, what he's doing. We're against him. But it should be a different way. It should be an absolutely different way. So first of all, let me talk about who do we remove? I wanna talk about this. Who do we remove? Do we remove unbelievers who come and visit this little service thing that we're doing? Is that what it says? No. It says anybody who claims the name of brother. If you're in this room and you are a member of Outpost Community Church, you say that you are a believer and you are an unrepentant sin, those are the people that we remove. It's the church. Those who are outside of the church that are gonna act like people who are not a part of the church. Why would we judge them? They're doing exactly what they say they're gonna do. It's the people inside of the church who say, yes, I wanna follow Jesus. He's my authority. And the Bible is my authority, conscience, and guide. Now, when do we remove them? Well, Matthew 18 tells us. Let me read this to you because you guys need to hear this. You need to know this. This is so important. Write this down. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Go to your brother and say, hey, bro, you're playing with a bear. And I love you. And I just want to tell you this because I love you. This is not good. And if your brother says, you know what, you're right. Let's call Game of Fish. Let's get this bear. Let's get it out of the wilderness. Thank you so much for loving me, man. I wasn't playing the movie for it. I wasn't thinking, you're right. This was going to destroy me. Thanks for loving me. You don't take it to the whole neighborhood. It says go one-on-one and talk to him. Don't gossip. Go. But what happens when your brother's like, man, hey, you can't tell me what to do. I can have a bear if I want. It's my house. You know what? Get out of my house. What do you do next? Well, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what does this look like? He said, look, if he's not going to listen to you, now grab one or two other people to come with you to reason. And here's how we pick those one or two people. It's people who can either, who are either a part of the situation or who can help the situation. You hear that? People who are either a part of the situation or can help the situation. You bring them in. What's the goal? To love the brother. Hey, we're all here. We love you. We've seen this in you. We think it's dangerous. And we're asking, brother, you're in sin. You gotta let this go. You gotta confess, you gotta repent. Please let this go. We love you, it's destroying you. Do you know what sin will do to you? It will slap your face off. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now knowing contextually what the church looked like in Corinth as well as it's, it's a different context than what it looks like here. So does that mean that we need to like, man, we got a brother in sin, we bring this guy up and we're like, guys, you see this guy right here? Sleeping with his stepmom. What do you guys think? You wanna listen to us now? It's not that. Here's how I'd express it. At Apple's Community Church, all of our members are in community groups. And we'd say the community group is their most local church. And so it means the leadership of Outpost, it means their community group, and maybe somebody that, who is their, one of their ministry leaders would say, well, let's go sit with this brother. Let's go sit in a home. Let's beg this brother to reason with us and to repent. And we do it because we love him and we pray like crazy, and we humble ourselves before him and say, brother, we're not, trying to, we're not trying to hurt you, we're trying to save you. You've got a bear. 
and we love you, please turn around from this. And then verse 17 and 18, if he refuses to listen even to the church, his church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Tax collector. In other words, let him be to you as a non-believer. A non-believer. So in Corinth, they were made up of a lot of little home churches, right? They knew the people who were a part of their body. And so what did it look like? It probably looked like in Corinth saying, hey, you can no longer be a part of this gathering. When Paul says, hey, don't even eat with this brother, there's a lot of controversy. Some people say, well, maybe that means you can't take communion with them. Maybe it means, you know, he says, don't even eat with them. It's like, maybe we don't get dinner together. Uh, maybe, it, you know, dinner was basically say, don't have any social ties with the person. So is it like, do we just like ostracize them? What do we do here? Well, I would say here, so that, you know, that's Corinth. That's what their scene looked like. What does it look like here in Cody? Here, what does it look like here at Outpost? Well, first, let me just point out this entire passage points out the reason why membership matters. Because if you're just a person who's just attending this place, I don't know if you're following Jesus. I don't know much about you. There's no church around you who's going to guard you, protect you, love you, serve you, and run alongside you. And so when someone comes to you and says, hey, brother, why are you doing this? Like, can we call this out in you? Can we love you? And be like, man, I don't have to listen to you. You don't have any authority on me. I'm just standing here to listen to this thing so I can go about my business and do what I want. That is the church. A lot of you believe that, that we could just attend something and go about our way but it will not lead to your life and your flourishing. That's why the members of Outpost Community Church have said, hey, we want to be members together. We raise our hands and say, I need other people in my life because I'm a part of a greater body and I need them to speak into my life. I need them to approach the closets. I need them to approach these things because man, in my right mind, I'm not always right. Is it true? Man, I got a community group around me because my heart is prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. And so it means that we need to have faithful men and women around us who could speak the truth in love and love and care for us. Now, if you are a non-member at Outpost and I see something that's sin, I'm gonna love you enough to come talk to you about it. And some of my friends know that. I'm probably gonna be like, hey, bro, can I talk to you? They're like, well, I'm, I don't have to listen to you. I'm like, you don't, but please, would you listen to me? I love you. You cannot. This is dangerous. And you say, well, heck with you. I'm like, all right, go, man, have it. But I'm telling you right now, it's not going to go well. So at Outpost, if we were to remove somebody from membership, what would that look like? So you guys can have an understanding. Members, if this is a surprise to you, it's our fault. But let me tell you what that would look like. If we walk, we are going to walk out Matthew 18 all the way. Matthew 18 has walked out in my house all the time. My wife approaches me and says, brother, hey, Greg, I, I, that, you didn't handle that right. You were harsh to Olivia. And I think you need to apologize. That's Matthew 18 that just got started. She approached me one-on-one -on -one, said, hey, brother, you're in sin. And your sin is now affecting your daughter. That's love is what my wife just did. Do you want me to turn back to my wife and go be like, no, 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 I'm an individual. I can do what I want and express myself how I want. And all of you just need to receive that and deal with that. No. And so what would happen if we walk it all the way out to the very end is you would be removed from community. In Outpost Community Church, our community groups are only made up of members. You have to be a member to be a member of one of our community groups because that's where we shepherd our people. So it means that you couldn't be a part of community group means you would no longer be under the care and oversight of elders and leadership team, and you could not serve at Outpost. Now, there's a lot of things in this that are just inherently true. Like, why in the world would you want to listen to us? You haven't listened to us the whole time. Number two, why would we let you serve and teach our children, lead a community group, if you're going to let this, you're going to continue to play with the bear in your life and you won't listen to anybody? I don't want you teaching our kids. Does that make sense? 
Here's the thing is, you guys don't like that. You're like, oh, in the church you can't do that. It's like, we do that, you do it everywhere else in your life. You don't show up to practice, you ain't gonna play. You don't show up to work, you ain't getting paid, you're fired. And they do it without love, we're doing it with love because we know it's destroying you. So this leads to the last thing, why do we remove, and I wanna tell you a great example. Why do we remove people from membership, why? Number one, because we love God and we believe that God's ways are truly good. You gotta ask yourself, do you actually believe God's ways are truly good? Do you believe them? Because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we want to see them flourish. Do you wanna see them flourish? Okay, point out the bear that's in their backyard and deal with yours. Number three, because we hate sin and its destructiveness in the people we love. And number four, because we have a mission to be the light of the world and your sin has a corporate impact on all of us as a family. And so does mine. Uh, about 11 years ago, I was in a sexual relationship with a girl. Both of us were saying we were Christians and we came from the same youth group and we were both serving at the same camp. But for the last nine months prior to camp, we were, ha we were uh, having sex together and we were not living in a way that honors Christ and listening to him. And it was destroying us, okay? And now I'm serving at a camp and I'm leading these kids, probably telling them not to have sex outside of marriage and to follow the Bible and love God. What do we call those kind of people? Hypocrites. And uh, now I did what I wanted and I chased down my own desires. And now I'm serving at camp. We broke up. We both felt convicted we shouldn't do it, um, which, you know, why does it take you nine months to decide that? And so I'm at camp and I'm serving and I'm leading, again, I'm leading a cabin of kids. And my pastor from five hours away pulls into the parking lot, walks up to me while I'm walking through camp, says, Greg, I need to talk to you. And I knew instantly what that was. He said, let's chat. I've already talked to Greg Oakley, who's the director of camp. Let's go down. So we go down to Greg's office. I've never been so terrified in my whole life. Greg and my pastor, two men I respect more than anybody in the world at the time, and they sit me down and say, brother, you're in sin. You've been doing this. And we found out this has been going on in your life for the last year. And we want to love you enough to tell you this is not good. And so they walked that out with me. And Billy said, hey, um, I want you to come down to Charleston with me. Can you be there this weekend? It's time to confess this, to walk this out, and you need to seek reconciliation with the other young lady. Are you willing to do that? Wisdom would tell me I should have said yes. I'm gonna go do that. The world will tell me, you guys don't have anything right to say that over me. I can do whatever I want, and that is who I am. So that weekend, I got in my car, I drove five hours all the way down to Charleston, South Carolina, sat in Billy's house, my pastor's house, with this young lady, and we sat and we talked and we worked it out. We asked for forgiveness from one another, we confessed the sin, and decided to take steps to walk forward in a new way. Because Billy loved me enough to come and drive five hours to speak the truth and love to me, I'm now married to Bonnie. Whereas she probably wouldn't have married me if that was the case. I've got two beautiful kids and Lord willing, one on the way. I've gotten to minister to hundreds of people and share the gospel. And Outpost is what it is today. Because one man loved me more than what my reaction was gonna be. And it led to flourishing, not just for me, but for others. 
Friends, you're not just saving your friend from destroying himself and destroying others. You're also hopefully by God's grace bringing about flourishing for him and so many more down the road. I wanna point out one passage that you guys need to have confidence in. It's verses seven and eight, which we have skipped over so far. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let me tell you what this means. And I know I'm going long, but I want you to hear this. This is what this means. We talked about unleavened bread and talks about the Passover. It seems kind of a random passage, but you need to understand this to see this. In the Old Testament, in the time of Exodus, when the people were slaves to Egypt, they had no rights, no freedom. God uh, did 10 plagues and the 10th and final plague was the angel of death that came over the people, passed over the people. And what the people did is they took a lamb and they would sacrifice the lamb. They take the blood of that lamb, put it on the doorpost of their home. And when uh, the angel of death passed over, if they trusted in faith in this and they would do what God said, that the angel of death would pass over them and there would be no death in their house. And God told them, hey, do not put any leaven in your bread. You're not gonna have time. You're leaving tomorrow. You are gonna be free. And so the Israelites would not put leaven in their bread, right? They'd have that flat bread because they ran because God had given them freedom. They were rescued from slavery and death. They passed through the waters of the Red Sea to walk out in the wilderness to follow God, to become a new people. And he says this to us right here in this passage because he's trying to remind you, friends, listen, Cody people, you used to be a slave to sin, Galatians 5.1. But for freedom, Christ has set us free. So we don't have to submit to the old yoke of slavery. We don't have to live in the old yeast of life, the old world way. We can walk in new life and in new freedom in the wilderness that is this culture in this world as we seek to follow people, uh, God because we are his people. But instead of a lamb, the lamb was Jesus. And Jesus poured out his blood for you so that you could be set free from sin. Don't hear this message as a judgmentalism on your sin. I'm not trying to be uh, some kind of legalist and say, oh, you rotten human being. I'm trying to show you that God loves you dearly and he wanted to set you free. And church, if God loves these people dearly, why wouldn't you love them enough to point out the thing that's destroying them? We should. So friends, at Apple's Community Church, we're committed to something and I think that many churches are not committed to. And we're asking you to be committed with us because you love us. We wanna love one another and we wanna speak the truth with one another. And that's a lot to take in and I would love to talk with you guys more about that. But as you can see, these guys are like, bro, shh. It's a lot. But I hope you can see it and sense the love that Paul's expressing to the Corinthian church and that I hope will exist here at Outpost. Hey, let me pray for us. Well, God, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for loving us and speaking the truth in love to us. I pray, Father, that, um, man, I pray, Outpost, we would just stop believing the lie of the culture that says that we're just individuals and we don't have to, nobody could tell us what to do and to bring discipline to the church is a, an evil thing and it's wrong and it's uncomfortable. But God, we would see past the uncomfortability to see the freedom and the fruit that could come through just speaking the truth. And I pray that my brothers and 
sisters in my community group, those seven other men and women would love me enough to speak the truth in love to me, like Billy Colbert did to me 11 years ago. I pray these people here would put themselves in a place where they could have people who will fully know them and fully love them, who will encourage them in times where they need encouragement, when they're doing a great job, but who will also call them out when they're walking towards things that are ultimately going to destroy them and destroy the church, destroy our witness. God, may we be a holy people, which you've prepared and that you use in Cody and the Bighorn Basin and beyond. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.